Welcome to this special edition of the Pharma Forum podcast. This is Paul Tunner from Pharma Forum. I'm very pleased to be here today with the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative in New York City. And we're going to talk about the role for the non-profit biotech, which very much is the model of IAVI, as we'll call them for short. So first of all, let me introduce the participants from IAVI who are here with me. So starting with yourself, Anna, just a quick introduction and we'll work around the table. Hi, hello everybody. This is Anna Suspeders. I am Chief Operating Officer at IAVI. Anita? Hello everyone, Anita Kowatra, Vice President for Communications at IAVI. Thank you. And Catherine? Hi, I'm Catherine Shi. I'm Associate Director of Operational Excellence at IAVI. Thank you very much. Maori? Hi everyone, and my name is Maori Yuan. I'm the Senior Research Scientist for IAVI's Design Development Lab. Thank you very much. And yourself, Eddie? Hi everyone, uh, I'm Eddie Said, and I'm the Executive Director of Manufacturing at IAVI. So before we get into the conversation itself, just to remind, you can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. And the podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and Stitcher, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. So let's get into the discussion now. As I say, we're here to talk about IAVI and the work that you're doing and the role for the non-profit biotech. So let's start with yourself, Annie. You've, you've described IAVI as this non-profit biotech model. What does that mean? And tell me a bit of background on IAVI itself. Yeah, thank you, Paul, for the question. So we are a biotech organization with a non-profit um, angle. So what this means, our mission is to translate scientific discoveries into affordable and accessible public health solutions. We are very much focused on access and affordability. Ayabi was born um, 23 years ago in 1996. Uh, it was born to develop a vaccine for HIV AIDS. And as we'll talk today, we've extended over time to other disease areas. But the, the idea is similar to any biotech organization. We have our research labs. And basically, Ayabi has four labs. We have two in, in the United States. We have one in California, another one in New York. We have a lab in London and another lab in New Delhi, in India. We also have uh, a product development organization. We have clinical operations. And lately, we have also extended our collaborations in the manufacturing space with other organizations, in particular with Serum Institute in India, which is the biggest manufacturer of vaccines in the world. The idea of Ayavi is to develop and accelerate research so that populations with limited resources are able to access that innovation. And the areas where we are focused is infectious diseases, uh, primarily HIV AIDS and tuberculosis, and then also other areas. Um, we are 200 people, 200 passionate people, very scientific people. 70% of our employees have a PhD, come from vaccine companies, biotech organizations and research institutions. We have a board of directors um, integrated by leading people in the global health space that help us guide our science in the right direction to make the most impact. And we are happy to be here with you, Paul. 
fantastic background. Thank you, Anna. So in many ways, the structure does resemble a, you know, a biotech or even a small pharma company with the global reach that you have. That's a really good introduction. So um, let me come to yourself, Mowley, just to pick up on Anna's introduction there and the work that you're doing. So what gaps in HIV research does IAVI specifically address? The world is still looking for an effective HIV vaccine. We're still not there yet. And for specifically for IAVI's design and development lab, our goal is to demonstrate the feasibility of a HIV vaccine, um, which will elicit durable T-cell response and also antibody response. And this vaccine has to be safe in the human. So what we do is we, we using a VSV um, platform as a viral vector to deliver the HIV um, antigens. And um, our leading candidate actually showed about 50% efficacy in our non-human primate um, monkey model. And the HIV vaccine, um, is, this one is actually is in the development uh, phase. Um, with our growing knowledge of the structure of the HIV um, antigen and uh, also uh, we know better about our platform. So we are keep our research pipeline moving forward. We are making uh, new designs. Our version 1 version 2 are still on the way and, and the um, testing. So um, we also um, working on, um, we found that the purity of a vaccine actually is uh, affect the efficacy in, the, in our animal models. So what we do, we have a group of people, we are um, developing the analytical assays to um, help us make the better judgments of how our vaccine quality is. And then we also working on um, further optimizing the um, product process, um, which also further improved the purity. So it's a pretty complex space to work in. Then yes. it's the science itself and the years of development, but also as you outlined, the manufacturing process is pretty critical in this. Yes, our lab actually is working very closely with IAB's PDC team, um, which Eddie will talk more about that, right. um, to move this um, vaccine from the research to the clinical. Yeah, very good, very good. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that platform a little bit more later and talk in a bit more detail. Um, but I think it's important to communicate just early on in this podcast that it's not all about HIV vaccines. So Anita, coming to yourself, tell us a bit more about how you've moved beyond um, the HIV vaccines work and what else IAVI is doing there. So thank you, Paul. Um, IAVI was founded, as Anna mentioned, um, just before antiretrovirals became available. So our natural inclination was to find a vaccine. The real motivation was to end AIDS. Now there's other tools. Treatment is essential, as is maximizing uptake. But then there are new modes of treatment, prevention, and potentially even a cure. Um, IAVI has played a central role in the discovery and development of broadly neutralizing antibodies. Our work there began with epidemiological studies in Africa, um, where we have, as um, was mentioned, we have also ongoing clinical trials. Um, and we also, uh, but we still believe in the nail in the coffin would be an AIDS vaccine. So even though we've moved beyond HIV AIDS as our focus areas, we still believe that an HIV vaccine would be the only solution to end an epidemic. But if we say we're just focused on a vaccine, that means we haven't kept up. We're focused on ending AIDS as an epidemic, whether that be via our work in vaccines or in antibodies. Um, and then as Mally mentioned, we have work on a number of platforms. Um, and one of them is the VSV vector, the vesicular stomatitis um, 
virus vector. And we found in our work on HIV that that could also be a potential platform for other disease areas. Um, so one of the ones that we've talked about um, that we have already been working on is actually loss of fever. And then there are other areas that potentially we can work on, and these would be, um, to Anna's point earlier, um, focused on disease areas that affect people, just disproportionately affect people living in low and middle income countries. Um, so loss of fever is a huge threat in those areas and is on the WHO's top list of, of potential epidemics. Um, in addition to that, we also have work in antibodies, as I mentioned, and those we would be pursuing um, potentially for HIV. And we have some um, trials that we're working on. Um, we're going to be working both um, on our own and then in collaboration with a number of entities, including, for example, the NIH. Um, and then beyond HIV, uh, we're also looking at those antibodies potentially for snake bite, which is a disease area that um, kills hundreds of thousands of people, primarily in India. Then our second big area, which Anna also briefly mentioned, is TB. Um, last year, we acquired the clinical assets of ARIS, which is a product development partnership that was focused on TB, and we're taking, um, we're optimizing the long-term experience of that team, uh, the clinical team in TB, um, which has run clinical trials in Africa, some of which have shown great efficacy um, in terms of developing vaccines for TB, um, a disease that was identified um, hundreds of years ago and yet does not have a truly adequate vaccine um, addressing it. So that research is also going to be critical. And, and um, HIV and TB uh, coexist as epidemics and each worsens the other. So it really makes sense. And we've tried to um, become involved in areas that make sense from a scientific point of view, using our scientific expertise, and then also from a population point of view. These public health challenges um, disproportionately affect people living in low and middle income countries. And it sounds like you've really got that startup mentality. You've still got that clear mission, focus on HIV and ending AIDS. But actually, as you've gone on that journey, you've discovered other, other applications of the technology and broadened out along the way. Exactly. And we've managed to take our platforms that we've developed with our expertise and our longstanding research and development in HIV and apply them to other areas, to other disease areas, whether loss of fever, whether TB, whether snake bite, that affect, um, that are really unmet medical need in the, primarily in the, um, in the developing world. Very good. And I'm sure we'll come back to that shortly. Um, Eddie, let me bring um, yourself in at this point, because we've heard really nice background there about IAVI and the work that it's doing. You're obviously not the only player focused on HIV and tuberculosis in some of these areas. So, but tell me a little bit more about how IAVI has really contributed to that global discovery and development and your, your specific focus within that. So, if, if you go back and uh, try to determine why was IAVI formed, um, you know, one of the reasons was we identified a huge translation gap um, the researchers were focused on identifying elegant research. They were publishing papers, doing animal studies, but this was not being translated into a product. Right. And if you see commercialization, commercialization is focused mainly by the big pharma. So this huge gap that was identified, this is where IRV fitted in. IRV's role was to work with academic scientists, universities, take their elegant concepts, translate them into a product, and then take them into clinical studies. So IAV's focus has been making material for clinical studies, doing the clinical studies, generating the phase one data, and then moving it to phase two and beyond. So during the course of this development, we collaborated with all the global leaders, scientific leaders in the field. We worked with scientists in um, UK, 
Uh, Sir Andrew Mike Michael was one of the biggest pioneers right. from the University of Oxford. He was the first one who identified that a T-cell response was really important in commercial sex workers. So our initial research was focused on developing strategies based on T-cell vaccines. We then used plasmid DNA platforms, we used MVA, we used several viral vectors, we used adenoviruses, AV, and we worked with all the big collaborators in the field Either it was New York, it was in Karolinska Institute, or in the University of Oxford, and took these concepts ahead. During the course, we went through three main changes. The first was focus on actually telling the uh, taking these concepts into the clinics, and our focus was basically HIV. Then the Gates Foundation came to us, and they said, "You guys have an excellent vaccine development capabilities. How about utilizing your expertise?" and working with other collaborators and taking these candidates into clinical studies. Right. And this was the best phase for IRV because what we did is we worked on broadly neutralizing antibodies. We worked on T-cell concepts. We worked on viral vectors and we have been able to take many of these into clinical studies. And as Anita mentioned, we have gone through a third phase where we are now a platform excellent group. We have the state of the art. We have established collaborations with the big pharma and we are translating these platforms into non-HIV purposes. And we're working on Lassa fever, Marburg, influenza, and many other non-HIV indications. So this way, what we have done is establish a network of partners, contract manufacturing groups, contracts, research organizations, and all the academic scientists, and being able to take all this and harness the expertise and take it into clinical studies. So we've made ourselves a big global presence now. Very good. Sounds like a really good partnership approach. And we'll talk about how you partner with pharmaceutical companies in a second. But just to pick up on one of the points there, I mean, the idea of, of partnering with academic partners and those kind of institutions is not uncommon to the, the big pharma companies. But I wonder if there's an element of I have a smaller size, being not for profit, slightly more perhaps entrepreneurial that helps foster those relationships and develop them a little bit further. Yeah, sure. So uh, essentially what, what happened, uh, if you see the IRV staff, uh, almost 75% comes from the industry and we have all played a major role in some level of uh, manufacturing, development, regulatory, preclinical quality. And this we found was lacking amongst the principal investigators coming out from the universities. So what we have done is harness the expertise of these PIs IRV has applied our expertise in vaccine development and together we have taken these concepts into clinics. And what we have done is, as Anna mentioned early, we have done it at a fraction of a cost. Right. And we have also accelerated the timelines. And by doing this, we have made good use of taxpayers' money and made significant progress in the field. Very good. Yeah, and if I may add to this, I think that the, the two keys of what Eddie is saying is affordability and access. We've done this with the end users in uh, low middle income countries in our minds, always thinking on that, which is a slightly different to the traditional bioscience model, focus more on mature markets or markets with, with you can afford high cost drugs. In our case, we've done this with the focus in the low middle income. Yeah. So real focus on not just the medical need, but the health economic need and the actual environment you're trying to tackle. Exactly. Very good. 
Okay, Catherine, let me bring you in because you've been sort of waiting patiently as we've been going through the background here. And with all that said, you know, your relationship with the pharmaceutical industry is critical. Those kind of partnerships are critical. So tell me a little bit more about the value that you bring to pharmaceutical companies and how you're working with them and how you're looking to work with them in the future. Sure. So I think there's a couple areas where IABI can bring value to pharmaceutical companies. The first is IABI can be a product development partner for products that don't have large enough markets in developed countries um, to make them financially attractive to pharmaceutical companies. An example of this would be our recent efforts um, in developing a vaccine for loss of fever, which Anita mentioned, um, and we're, we're doing that with funding from CEPI. And originally, as part of the licensing agreements for the Ebola vaccine, Merck actually had the rights. Um, for the VSV vaccines against other viral hemorrhagic fevers, including a VSV-based loss of fever vaccine. However, they didn't have any plans to really develop that vaccine, and so they gave up those rights for us to acquire. And Merck has remained involved as part of our loss of fever consortium in an advisory capacity, but doesn't face any of the financial obligations that it would otherwise for developing that candidate. Another area where I think we add value to pharmaceutical companies um, is in the area of as a clinical partner. So IABI has clinical research centers in five sub-Saharan Africa countries and in India. Right. Um, these are GCLP, GCP, and GPP compliant centers that have extensive clinical trial experience and access to diverse high-risk and low-risk populations. And our clinical research center partners have participated in dozens of trials. An example would be um, some of them have recently participated in HVTN705, the Imbocoto trial with Janssen Pharmaceuticals. Um, another area where we can add value is in the area of discovery. So as Anita mentioned, IABI's protocol G pro project resulted in dozens of broadly neutralizing antibodies being discovered. Um, these BNABs, as they're called, are being shown to be very promising in HIV vaccine research and product development, particularly in combinations. Um, and for example, one of the antibodies that IAVI actually generated and discovered has been included in Sanofi's tribe-specific molecule. is called PGDM1400. And in addition to access to, to BNABs, IAVI also has done work discovering other new antibodies for pharmaceutical companies. And recently, Anna mentioned our focus on access and the end user. We've also partnered with pharmaceutical companies to do research on um, target product profiles and um, giving advice to pharmaceutical companies on what their product should look like right. for delivery. Right. So as you've outlined, you, you've got certain platforms that you developed, you've got certain presence around clinical trials, but actually that more, I guess, strategic counsel based on the team that you have and what you've learned is proving to be a value, value to pharmaceutical industry partners. Yes. Indeed. Very good, very good. And this is, you know, as you outlined there, this is not just hypothetical, this is what we could do. These are active partnerships that you have ongoing at the moment. If I, I'm gonna build on what Catherine said, I think she gave terrific examples. I mean, basically, um, Paul, our value proposition is that we're going after big challenges in global health and delivering concrete solutions that can have a defined Im um, impact on epidemics that face um, individuals in, in low and middle income countries. Yep. Um, we're, you know, we're science driven and we're putting yep. access first. Yeah. And it, it strikes me these are the scale of these challenges is of a level that even the biggest pharmaceutical companies, it's probably very difficult for them to even contemplate tackling these things alone. So I guess, you know, with your approach of partnership and bringing the right groups together, 
that's probably what's going to be the solution if one can be found. I think you've captured that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. So let's you know let's dive into some of the detail here because I'm, I'm really interested to hear more about the sort of day to day work. And I'll come back to yourself, Anna, in terms of we heard a bit there about your your global presence. But tell me more about you know where you conduct the R and D. Um, where the clinical trials are taking place and how you manage those operations. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, we have four labs. It's one of the labs is focusing on one technology. So for example, our lab in California is in partnership with the Scripps Institute and is focused on broadly neutralizing antibodies. It's an antibody platform. Our lab here uh, in New York is focused on the VSV technology, vesicular stomatitis virus technology, virus technology. Uh, we have another lab in the United Kingdom with Imperial colleagues in London. And this lab is focused on assay development as well as sample management and data management. We have a big database of HIV AIDS patient information that will enable us in the future to optimize clinical trial design and product development. And then our lab in India is focused on certain partnerships between India and Africa, and it's also done in partnership with the government of India. One of the characteristics of these labs, as I can tell, as I am saying, is partnership with best-in-class research institutions, whether universities or government research centers, that makes us more efficient in a way. So, in addition to this, we have a strong presence to regional offices, one in New Delhi that covers India, and another one in, in Kenya, in, in Nairobi. Um, through these regional offices, we partner with multiple countries in these geographies. The idea, in particular in areas like Africa, the idea is to make sure, Catherine was mentioning this, is the research that is done there is to the best standards, so that is ZXP um, approved, accredited, and, um, and that the results of this research can deliver products that can be approved by FDA or EMA. So we have partnerships with 11 network clinical research centers in Africa and India. We have 12 labs that are already um, good clinical and laboratory practices accredited so that the research is, is best in class. And all this has enabled, over this period of time, has enabled Ayabi to do, in the space of HIVAs, we've done 32 clinical trials. 32? Wow. Yes. We've done 30 epidemiology studies that are within the, the most extensive in the, in the HIV AIDS community. Trials done 23 years ago with data of patients that at the moment were not on treatment. So it's extremely relevant data to do later on um, immunology studies and really understand how drugs work. And, um, and similarly, we integrated um, part of an organization focused on tuberculosis, and they also bring to the table similar numbers of efficacy, phase three, phase two, phase one trials. I think it's 35 trials or so that they've also done in these 20 years. Our trials are done across the world. So we do trials with research organizations in Massachusetts, in New York, in the United Kingdom, and of course in Kenya, South Africa, and India. Because global health requires this global approach. 
And I guess the more of this you do, you're not resting on your laurels. I guess you're seeing more countries wanting to partner, more potential partners around this trial process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, global health um, requires this partnership model. Nobody has all the answers in these complex diseases uh, to be able to answer everything by itself. So, Ayabi has right now in place more than 150 partnerships. I forgot to mention before, and it's very important to mention, there is a number of institutions that are really investing in Ayabi and that have been doing so for these two decades that we've been working. So the U.S. government, USAID, Pepfarm, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Bank, the European Union, UKA, the Ministry of the Netherlands, of Danida, Japan, Irish Minister, Government of India. So those organizations, beyond the investment in resources, we also do partnerships with them in terms of capabilities. And we joined efforts such as recently with the NIH here in the United States to develop antibodies together that are going to be potentially a new solution for HIV AIDS. So those partnerships are both capabilities as well as resources with the government of the US as well. We've been working very closely with the PEPFAR people and USAID in helping to develop capabilities, scientific capabilities in Africa, helping young African scientists to grow and thrive. And this has been a partnership that has brought wonderful results in the science as well as um, the, the ability to help these researchers to do research beyond HIV AIDS. So you're making great progress in some pretty tough areas, but there's always a but with this. You know, it's not easy working in these areas. So, Anita, to come back to yourself, you know, tell me about some of the barriers that you face in your work and, and how you're trying to find routes over, around, under, whatever way through those. Well, I'm going to leave our scientific barriers, which are considerable, um, to our scientists who can address those because HIV is probably the most challenging virus um, that mankind has ever discovered. And similarly, TB is a particularly insidious bacteria. And the other areas that we work on are, you know, potentially um, serious epidemics that we would like to contribute to the effort to prevent. So what I think, you know, what our greatest barrier is, is there is no true model for accelerating global health innovation and impact. And that's where we're trying to work with collaborators to fill a gap. I want to be clear that this is not something that we think we're, we're going to do alone. And while we'd love to think of ourselves as unique, we don't want to be unique. We want to collaborate with many other organizations and we want to co-create a model that will work where multinational innovator companies are able to make contributions to global health in a manner that utilizes their skills and assets and does so in a defined way that as a couple of my colleagues have said, um, avoids the kind of significant financial obligations that they don't want to take on alone. Sure. Um, and that we partner also with public sector organizations um, for, to take responsibility, for example, for procurement and delivery for novel health innovations, particularly in low-income countries. And when I said earlier that we were science-driven and we put access first, what I meant by that is that right now, I mean, that's our aspiration, right? Right now, there's not a model um, that puts the needs and access of the people that are living in the areas that are disproportionately affected by epidemics like HIV and like TB that puts their needs first. We are bound a little bit by the traditional slow pace of technology diffusion from yes. higher income countries yes. to lower income countries. And what we want to do is engage in a different way in the product development process to ensure that products are developed 
that are optimized for their potential to achieve desired public health impact. And we really want to work towards a world where the private and the public sector partners and nonprofit biotechs like ourselves are aligned across the spectrum of product development in a way that defines the roles and responsibilities, that specifies what data, for example, is needed to be generated. Catherine referenced our end user research that looks at, that keeps the end in mind, that puts the end first, um, and that you know includes commitments to things like procurement, um, implementation, and where risks are shared fairly and reasonably so that, you know, to Eddie's point, we don't get stuck. We are um, bridging all the different aspects, whether it's translation, whether it's access. And this enhanced collaboration ideally would yield productive and positive partnerships. So the way I would describe this, and these are my words, so correct me if this is not wrong, but we, we hear talk about open innovation quite a lot within healthcare, within pharmaceuticals. Often that's quite early stage research. What I see IAVI doing is what I describe as open innovation, but with a kind of real-world slash commercial mindset, albeit you're a not-for-profit company, where it's taking that much further than perhaps the open innovation we normally see. Is that a, is that a fair description? I think that's fair. The one thing that I would say is rather than focus on commercialization, that we're really focused on access. Right. To your point, we're non-profit, so we're not looking to... Um, we're looking to create, yes, a sustainable market where we can provide solutions that really make sense in low-income countries. Yeah. Um, so a little bit different from traditional commercialization, but yes, we like to see ourselves as a nonprofit biotech because we both span, you know, we have capabilities that span the product development continuum, number one, but number two, we really are focused on the final, sort of the end product, so to speak, which is to ensuring sustainable access um, for those most in need. Let's um, come back to yourself, Mowley, and come back to the, the science for a moment, because there's some pretty cool science behind all this that we touched on earlier. So tell me a bit more about the IAVI Design and Development Laboratory, and, and specifically the VSV platform that you touched on before. Okay, so um, the IAVI Design Development Lab, we also call DDL. Um, our lab is located in Brooklyn, New York. Um, the lab was established in 2008 when we received initial funding from the Gates Foundation for our HIV vaccine research. And then we also received support from the city of New York as part of their um, local economic development plan. Um, our research is focused on uh, using the BSV as a viral vector to display the HIV immunogen. So uh, as I just said, we our leading candidates actually um, elicit about 50% of protection in our non-human primate model, um, which is a very promising number in the HIV field. Um, so our, and our um, HIV research is also sponsored by um, um, NIH and the World Bank. Um, more recently, as a part of IAVI's strategic plan um, to expand the portfolio for the lab, so we received funding from CEPI, um, to go beyond the HIV vaccine. Um, the new project is to make, um, as Anita just said, is to make a vaccine against the Lassa fever. So we use similar um, technologies. We use the same VSV platform, but we switch it to um, glycoprotein from the Lassa fever virus um, to make the vaccine. Um, we also have um, an in-house early development facility um, so we can convert our leading um, research virus into um, GMP-compliant product. Um, so our lab works very closely with our PDC team, um, so we can um, further facilitate um, the research work 
um, move into the clinical side. Um, so now I'm going to talk about a little bit technical detail about the VSV platform because I think we have mentioned this several times. And just before we get on to the technical details, I want to come back to that, that figure of 50% that you quoted there because you, you could look at that and say why not 60%, why not 70%, but this is pretty tough area. So can we just put that figure in context of what people are striving for and maybe what we've, what we've seen before? Um, so if I save 50% protection in the monkey model, um, we actually we did multiple um, animal studies in the HIV um, fields. 50% is a really very high protection. Um, you basically you say 10 of the monkeys you're testing, um, five of them is totally protect from the SIV challenge. SIV is some um, HIV version for the right. monkey. Right, and it, I believe it's it's higher than the targets which are yeah so there is not to my knowledge a target code profile from who for an hiv vaccine there is one for a tb vaccine for example and the recent data published which was an efficacy data of 54 percent was meeting this target code profile so in vaccine that efficacy is really relevant yeah. and good enabled to eradicate the disease over a number of period of years. Obviously, this requires including policies that will include the vaccine in the right subpopulations, in the right uh, number of countries, etc. But an efficacy of this level is really a major achievement. Now, as Maoli is saying, this is, this is a non-human primate data. Mm -hmm. which means that it has to be repeated and, and sure. it has to be proven For efficacious, sure. obviously, in, in humans. But I think it's important to remind that we're talking about vaccine therapy here. We're not talking about management of the disease, which I think is what people often think about when they think of HIV and AIDS. It's kind of retroviral therapies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. This is, this is prevention. This is proper vaccines. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this type of complex diseases, as Anita was saying, HIV virus is a special type of virus. It's extremely complex, mutates rapidly, is very difficult to be seen due to its uh, protection, right? Um, and uh, in, in, in this case, I mean, you need multiple approaches. You need treatment, you need prevention approaches. You right. need all the spectrum of possibilities for the different subpopulations. Ultimately, a vaccine will be the only tool that will enable to eradicate an infectious disease. And if you think, for example, on tuberculosis, right? This is an ancient, ancient disease. And every, um, every one minute, three people die of TB, right? So the only way to eradicate an infectious disease is with a vaccine. That's why we are, uh, you know, working towards this. Now, developing a vaccine is not a 10-year or 20 or 30 project. It's really a project that might require uh, numerous decades. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm, I'm sorry, Paul. I just want to follow up on the question specifically sure. about the 50% because modeling studies have shown that even at a 50% level of efficacy, a vaccine would have a huge impact, especially in the areas where the disease is most endemic in right. Eastern and Southern Africa. Even if all those countries achieved the UNAIDS targets for treatment, which is you know the 90-90-90 UNAIDS targets, yes. even if they achieve them by next year, which by the way isn't going to happen, a vaccine would pre prevent 7 million new infections at 50% efficacy um, by 2035. So it, it can have a huge impact on a disease that infects 1.8 million new people every year. Yeah, no, it, it's a good point. And again, I think just so people are clear on that, you know, 
the point of a vaccine is it doesn't just help the person who's given it, it stops them spreading that to other people and therefore you get that kind of knock-on effect within there. So, okay. Mally, let me just come back to you because I think you were going to say a bit more about the VSV platform. Let's hear about some of the science behind this. Okay, so I'll go a little bit, bit deep into the science. Um, so why we use the VSV platform for HIV vaccine? Um, classic vaccines, we we usually use live attenuated virus or we use um, inactivated virus to induce the pro protective immunity. For example, the measles vaccine, we use live attenuated measles virus as a vaccine. And the polio, we use inactivated polio virus as a vaccine. Um, but these two methods, um, it's not practical um, for the HIV vaccine sure. because the HIV is highly pathogenic and it will cause a lot of safety concerns if we use life attenuated HIV or, or inactive, even inactivated HIV virus um, directly to be used at the vaccine. So we have to find an alternative way. So what we do is use um, a safer viral vector um, as a carrier to present the HIV immunogen. Um, we, we actually in the lab during the past decade, we tested several such viral vectors and VSV is our top selection um, for multiple reasons. Um, first, VSV is very safe. Um, the VSV uh, naturally infects livestock like um, pigs, horses, cows. Um, infection of VSV in human, um, it only causes very limited transit flu-like symptoms. So there's no serious sickness associated with VSV infection. Right. And uh, we know that Merck, they developed an Ebola vaccine recently, and it's also using the same VSV platform. Uh, that Ebola vaccine has been tested in the clinical trial, um, which achieved 100% protection. Um, so it has an established safety record as a, yeah, as a platform. Yeah, and uh, we didn't see any reported associated any serious sickness associated with the vaccination. So okay. which is a good news for us um, to further study on the VSV platform. And then also technically VSV is um, very easy for genetic engineering because it, its genome is small. It's only 14 kb. Uh, make it easier for cloning and putting exogenous genes <coughs> into the VSV. Um, so what our way, our VSV HIV vaccine is we, we replace the Y-type VSV glycoprotein with a glycoprotein from the HIV. So basically, you, if you can look under the electron microscope of the VSV, it still keeps the VSV structure, but um, there's a HIV envelope sticking out as the spikes cover the whole space of the virus particle, which induce the immunity against the HIV infection. So you're, you're training in a way, trying to explain in simple terms so that for those who haven't got the deep science, but you're training in a way the immune system to recognize this piece yeah. of HIV and latch onto it. Yeah, we call it, it's a chimera virus, so it's a VSV HIV chimera virus. Right. It is VSV safe to human, but it can induce the anti-HIV um, immune response. Okay, very good. Um, and also I want to mention the VSV platform is not just used for HIV. As I said, the work has of Ebola, we can use the same VSV platform. And right now we are also working on use the same platform for the Lassa vaccine. And we, we probably will also keep working on Marburg disease 
um, Ebola and Sudan string. There's another string as what Morocco is doing. Um, so the advantage of using one platform for several um, bio, um, vaccine products is that you, it reduces the cost and the time uh, to develop a product. So this is a, a huge advance for the VSV platform. Very good. Thank you. Eddie, I want to come back to you um, and just pick up on this. And, and we've heard a bit about the science involved there, but tell me how you know, Iavi's work has really accelerated the science and, and some of the things that maybe you're doing that no one has done before or maybe is not able to do. So uh, I'll, I'll just take off from where Mauli left, you know, is so what they have done is uh, they've understood the genetic engineering of the, uh, of the VSV model. They've been able to engineer the, the VSV virus for HIV, for Marburg, for Lhasa, and we, now we intend to use it for some other diseases also. What I have done at my end is understood the manufacturing process. And because it's a platform technology, we can use the same manufacturing platform for all the VSV-based vectors. So this has greatly reduced our process and asset development time and we have been able to scale it up to a point where we can actually make enough material for clinical trial. We also have a plan for stockpiling. We also have a plan for lyophilization so that we can make a thermostable vaccine. And what we think is just by working on the HIV, we are able to actually use that same process for at least four or five different disease indications. So this way we have been able to accelerate the entire development altogether. A similar strategy we have used for broadly neutralizing antibodies. We have identified a network of CMOs that are expert, have expertise in cell line development. We have worked with them and generated high producing cell lines that are stable. Right. We have developed a manufacturing process that can be applied. We have identified groups that can test the product as well as clinical trial capacity. So once this platform is established, we can, the subsequent molecules can be run pretty easily. A third area is the HIV immunogens that we are making. Our Scripps lab uh, have, have the expertise to design elegant HIV immunogens and the idea is to elicit broadly neutralizing antibodies. So we have worked with a network of contract manufacturing groups that have established a process that can be used for, for multiple HIV immunogens and our development time for subsequent molecules has greatly reduced. And we have also established a great network with our regulators who have understood IRV's strategy for both preclinical and clinical so that we don't have to do preclinical studies for every single molecule. We can harness on the development work that we have already done for one of the molecules and take it forward. So this way, in three different platforms, last of, uh, with VSV, with antibodies, as well as HIV immunogens, we are able to accelerate the development greatly based on the experience gathered. So there's, what strikes me there is there's elements of scalability in multiple aspects of what you're doing in terms of you know, different disease areas that this can apply to, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of global reach because of the partnerships you have, which I guess is really critical moving forwards. Yeah. Catherine, let me come back to you then because we've talked about global health um, and first of all actually it'd be, be good to get your definition of global health because I'm sure people use the term in different ways but you know if we look forward what kind of impact IAVI has already had on global health but also what kind of impact you're striving to have in the future 
and where you would like to see things going? Sure. Well, to your first question about the definition for global health, I think at IAVI it's really focused on ensuring that the people who need um, it most can access health solutions. And that's one of the reasons why we've expanded our, our mission um, so that we're translating scientific discoveries into affordable and excessive public health solutions right. for all populations. Um, in terms of the public health um, impact we'd like to have, I mean, as my colleagues have discussed, we have broadened our mission and we've been focused on um, driving public health in areas outside of HIV. Um, but And I'll talk about some of that in a minute, but I do want to highlight that a lot of those Im impacts um, are due to our work in HIV vaccine research. And as Anita mentioned, an HIV vaccine would be transformative for global public health. Um, it would provide long-lasting protection. It could be distributed widely and confidentially without notifying partners, parents, and peers, um, thereby overcoming a lot of challenges related to stigma, behavior change, and adherence. And it would protect all people at risk of HIV infection, including those most vulnerable. Um, and not only do we have our HIV scientific programs driving towards this eventual global health impact, but we also have capacity building programs in Africa um, through our partnership with USAID. And it's been really focused on engaging with populations in Africa and India, um, building the scientific capacity there and community readiness for future HIV candidate um, clinical trials. But we know that an HIV vaccine is years, if not decades away. Um, and so over that time, IABI has been well positioned to still make significant global health impacts. And that's because we've been leveraging the platforms that Mali and Eddie and Anita and Anna have been describing to other um, emerging diseases. Um, we've heard about our work on Lassa fever, on snake bite, um, and most recently we've introduced uh, the Beacon program. And through Beacon, we'll be advancing new partnerships to develop and enable access to affordable, innovative antibodies. Currently, monoclonal antibody treatments are out of reach for most um, of the world's population. Innovative, low-cost monoclonal antibodies are urgently needed, and we're hoping that we can offer a beacon of hope um, through our program. So for us, Beacon is a platform that we can use to translate our HIV experience and antibody discovery, optimization and development to multiple disease areas. Um, we're working to connect with partners in the public and private sector to solve disease agnostic problems. We're applying an end-to-end -end approach to enable access to affordable antibodies. And um, we hope to make major breakthroughs in addressing significant and unacceptable health inequities. And we recently um, announced, as Anna alluded to in some of her remarks, a collaboration with the Serum Institute of India, um, the world's largest vaccine manufacturer, on affordable, accessible antibodies for HIV and other global health challenges as part of this program. Very good. And, you know, everything you described there, and in fact, everything from the broader earlier conversation makes sense, you know, sounds super exciting. I guess one question would be, how unique is all of this to IAVI? Because it sounds like common sense to take these approaches. And I know it's not that easy, but how unique is your work? And, and why have other companies or other organizations not tried to do this already? 
Yeah, so there are other organizations working as well, not necessarily in HIV AIDS, but in other space. One example of this was an organization, ERAS, that was focused on TB, and recently we, we joined the first, but there are other organizations in uh, developing drugs or uh, vaccines in other areas focused on, on low-middle-income countries, so it's not unique. It's, a, it's an... It's an interesting, let's say, innovate, it's an innovative model. Um, and why it's becoming, I, I would say, Paul, is becoming increasingly important is because I think we um, we are starting to, to understand that it um, it is important to accelerate the, the access to the innovation to countries. Traditionally, we've done research with the developed markets in our mind. And developing countries were, you know, after a while, being able to access that innovation. I think our society is changing. And I think more and more we are starting to see, and I can tell you when we hire scientists, when we hire people coming from pharma, such as myself, one of the drivers of these people joining Ajabi is because they know they are joining a very advanced in terms of research organization and at the same time mission driven. We are really caring about affordability and access, which makes those of us who are passionate about the science double passionate because it's science accessible to all. And you mentioned there obviously your background being in, in big pharma and you know, other people's backgrounds. Tell me a bit more about the team and where people have come from and, and you know, why they're coming to IRB. Yeah, so thank you for asking this question. I, I mean, I, I, I joined Ajabi six months ago. Eddie was one of the people in my interview process, I remember. <laughs> and I was asking a lot of questions. And uh, all of the answers I got have proven, honestly, very true answers. Because what I saw in those initial conversations is what I see today, six ma- months after. Ajabi has a population of people across all areas and across, it's a truly international organization. You are seeing this in this table, Canada, India, China, Spain. We are truly global organization, truly diverse organization. In terms of background, 70% of our people or so come from pharmaceutical companies, uh, most of them vaccine companies because we are, we are developing vaccines. Sure. And I would say the characteristic of the people at Ayabi, and my colleagues would also express their own opinion, is two things. Is high-performing individuals, individuals who are extremely high-performing in the science, as in any biotech or a small organization, you have to be able to do multiple things at the same time. You can't afford to be an expert in only one thing, such as with pharma. You might need to be an expert in three things, right? So this diversity in terms of responsibilities is very attractive. At the same time, it's very demanding. And the second thing, as I said, is people ambitious to change the world, not only in developed countries, which is something we all feel passionate about, but also in developing countries, also for those people um, who normally are the second um, population to care about, and for us is the main one. Yeah. 
Okay, makes sense. And let me just come back to yourself, Catherine, and just just talk about this partnership model with with pharma because I think that that's something that's that's really important. Just to clarify how you're looking to work with these companies and where you know traditional biotech might take something through to phase two, but probably not beyond, and they'd be looking to license. So, just clarify exactly how you want to be working with pharmaceutical companies moving forward and in what areas. I might pass that on to Anna. I just yeah. want to make it sort of crystal clear. Yeah, as a yeah I think um, IAVI has been partnering for a long time with governments and with other public organizations. We have partnered with pharma as well in clinical trial development in Africa, for example. We've done efficacy and also early trials for pharma in Africa. We have strong capabilities. We understand the most difficult populations, the ones that are most difficult to access, we work with them on a daily basis. And we can either advance, advise pharma on how to really develop products that are suitable for those populations. We can do the research in partnership with pharma because we have access to the populations and the most relevant researchers in the area. So that's one area, clinical development. The other one is um, also in early research. We are able to help pharma identify potential candidates for their development, whether those, anti whether those are antibodies or viral vector-based candidates. We are able to, in a cost-effective way, partner with pharma to identify those future development candidates. And I would say those are the two main areas. Maybe, Eddie, you want to add? Yeah, Paul, I'd just like to add, you know, is if you go back and see why was IRV formed, you know, because there was a translation gap. And at that point, the pharma was not interested in taking the risks. This is where IRV jumped in. We worked with universities, academic scientists. We took these concepts, worked on them, translated it into a candidate and did the clinical studies. And over a period of time, we have worked on 48 candidate vaccines and taken 30 of them into clinical studies. The rich data that we generated is today forming the basis of these clinical trials and new vaccines. Now, one thing that we have found recently is we can take it up to phase one, but there has to be a big pharma involved in taking it further right. and commercialization. And this has been identified as, a, as another gap. And that is a reason why IRV has now entered into that area we are forming relationships with big pharma and want to translate this beyond phase one. Some of the examples I can give you is, you know, a program like the Janssen program on the Ad26. IAVI's clinical trial capacity has greatly accelerated the clinical trial completion and we are going to generate the data as quickly as possible. So here we collaborated with the big pharma and made a difference. The second was is the Serum Institute of India where what we want to do is they have the expertise in actually making low-cost products. So what we want to do is identify new molecules that are more potent and have greater breadth. So this is where the Scripps Institute is re-engineering the antibodies to increase the potency. And we want to take it to Serum, who has the expertise to actually make it low-cost. And a third example is, again, we are working with Gilead, a big organization on antibodies, and again want to take this into clinics. So there are already examples where we are moving in the right direction, working with the big pharma to be able to achieve the global access. 
So there's elements of what you do, as you both described there, you could almost say to some degree that it's a not-for-profit clinical research organisation, but only to a certain point as you get into phase one trials, which is where the partnership with Big Pharma becomes really critical. Yeah, so the markets that are in our scope are low-middle-income countries, those that are not profitable. So this is where we want the products we develop to get access to. And there's an opportunity of building partnership models where somebody develops a product that is profitable in developed countries and is marketed by a pharmaceutical company. And Ayabi, in partnership with others, develop the, develops the product to be marketed at a low cost um, so that it's accessible in low-middle-income countries. And we think this is a model, if you think well, that can, that can be a model of the future, a model where partnerships help to enable access to low-middle-income countries early on, while at the same time that innovation reaches developed countries as it is the case right now. I was just going to add, rather than thinking about it in the traditional sort of phase one, phase two, phase three, is really we see our role as accelerating scientific discovery, development, and eventually access by fostering collaborations among academia, industry, local communities, governments, funders, to explore new and better ways to address public health threats that disproportionately affect people living in poverty. Yeah. And I think what's come across for me today is I think the description of being a non-profit biotech is a very valid one because there's the scientific heritage and enthusiasm and you're tackling really tough areas that, that need to be tackled, but actually the way you're partnering and the collaborations you're setting up and the focus of your work and the breadth of your work is probably much greater than you typically see in a, in a normal biotech company, if I can describe it that way. So it sounds like you've got exciting times ahead. Was there anything else anybody wanted to add that we haven't covered that you wanted to go through? Just uh, a thank you to our donors. I think it's important to highlight that everything we do on a daily basis is thanks to organizations such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the USAID, the US government, that trust IAB and have been doing so for, for decades, uh, with who our partnership is, is really fundamental for for us to execute on our mission. And for those that want to find out more about IAVI, we'll put a link in the podcast. If you want to just say the URL as well, for those who may be listening on the move, go to... It's www.iavi.org. Very good. Although, obviously, if you are on the move driving a car, don't try and go there right now. <laughs> Safety first. So I'm going to wrap things up. For me, this has been fascinating. I think, you know, I came here... You know, not knowing what to expect in terms of the details of what you're doing. I like this description of being a non-profit biotech, but what I've heard today is, you know, real passion about the science, real passion on collaboration and that kind of open innovation, but with that mindset on not just the science itself, but actually getting things that make a difference in terms of global health to the people that need them, um, and that desire to work alongside the pharma industry. So. Um, thank you very much, Anna, for the invite to come and, and speak with you today. Very much appreciated. And thank you to your colleagues, Anita, Catherine, Maori, and Eddie. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, you can, of course, find out more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast uh, and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. Um, and to remind you once again that this podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, and Stitcher. 
and you can find it there by um, searching for Pharma Forum and subscribing. And if you're not already, please do also subscribe to the Pharma Forum daily and weekly newsletter and our Twitter feed, where we'll keep you up to speed on more of these discussions. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Paul Turner from Pharma Forum with my friends at IAVI.